This podcast is brought to you by sarahraven.com, which is home to everything you need for a truly beautiful and productive garden. You'll also find great and essential gardening kit and stylish, lovely things to have in your house to bring the outside indoors, all inspired by the garden and the house being tied together. There's also plenty of garden inspiration, how-to videos and specialist growing guides. So head over to sarahraven.com today to discover even more. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange, the podcast of me, Sarah Raven. And actually, in this podcast, I'm going to take very much a back seat. I'm introducing Steve Head again from the Wildlife Gardening Forum, who is my guru, and Adam Nicholson, my husband, who is my other guru. Oh. And um, <laughs> they are going to talk about uh, life and the meaning of life. No, they're not. They're, <laughs> they're going to talk about ponds and the importance of ponds, small, massive What's the benefit of either? Is it worth having a tiny one? Is it worth having a goldfish pond? Is it worth having a tray of water? So over to Steve and Adam to debate and convince you all, <laughs> including us, to put in a pond. Well, we hello, Steve, again. Hello, uh, Adam. Lo- lovely to see you. We are very keen on the idea of putting in a whole series of ponds in the garden, near the garden, in the farm at Perch Hill where we live. There certainly were ponds in the past, as in many farms, but they have largely filled in through natural processes rather than been filled in. Yeah. And so, you know, it would be lovely to think of you like, you know, Moses leading us to the promised land of a very, very pondy future. Well, I will part the Red Sea for you. You know, there's a marvellous thing, the uh, the Sussex Pond Pudding. Do you know that? I do. It's the one with whole lemons in. Is that it, right? It is, exactly. So <laughs> we want to turn Perch Hill into a Sussex Pond Pudding, if you could. Now, what a wonderful thing. And to do, I, I have to say that with climate change coming, you may very well be able to grow your own lemons to put in the pudding. <laughs> Probably, yeah. um, Just picking up on something very significant you said – which is that the ponds on your little farm uh, have probably silted up naturally. And some, of course, probably have been filled in. And this is actually really important because we know from looking at ordnance survey maps and things of that kind that we've lost something like a million uh, countryside ponds within the last hundred years. And the assessment for the number of ponds we've got now in the countryside is... 480,000. It sounds like a lot, but compared with 1.5 million, they've really reduced. And they have been filled in in many cases. But yes, ponds naturally silt up. And after a while, after a long while, a pond will effectively become a bit of soggy ground and then eventually probably a bit of woodland. The filling up, I th- is it to do with I was thinking about this, the the end of the mixed farm, that in a mixed farm where you would have a lot of animals and, and needing to drink, uh, a pond would be a very useful thing. But yeah. in a, an exclusively arable farm, a pond is a useless thing. In fact, it's a, a waste of ground. And it's I think, almost a liability in some cases. And a liability. Yes. So you, yeah. you fill it in and, and you gain more, more growing ground. Yeah. And even, in fact, nowadays, or in the last century, people have actually brought tap water onto farmland. And, of course, you have drinking troughs. 
the advantage of a drinking trough is that it, it doesn't run out if you have a dry summer, whereas a pond, in fact, might dry out. So that's another reason why ponds have been devalued, even in basically animal-based farming system. So what is the value of the pond? What is the essential thing that it, that it brings to a place? Uh, twofold. One is it is simply a source of water for all kinds of creatures, and we can come back to that later. But the real significance is a pond is a whole ecosystem in the same way that the terrestrial environment of a garden, let's say, is an ecosystem. So if you can put a pond in your garden, you've not just got one ecosystem, you've got two. And the two are mutually very sympathetic, and one will help another one along very nicely. So if, if, you, if you put a pond uh, into a garden, say to start with, what is it that it would bring that wouldn't be in the garden now otherwise? It will bring in, in large quantities, things that you might get a few of, but which wouldn't be there in large quantities because they, they're lacking a pond. So things like frogs and newts. Frogs and newts will travel quite long distances from the ponds where they were born and where they breed. But if you really want to have good, good numbers of them in the garden and in the gardens around, then you need a pond for them to breed in. And so that's the first thing. And of course, these plus toads are really helpful to gardeners because they love to gobble up some of the nasty things like slugs, for instance, that uh, gardeners find curiously distasteful. <laughs> Apart from that, of course, more significantly, I think, from my point of view, uh, they bring in insects. And the classic one to talk about, of course, are dragonflies and damselflies. And these have an entirely aquatic youth stages. They start off as eggs and they grow into little larvae and they get bigger and bigger and bigger until finally they're big enough to climb out, expand their wings and fly and be such glorious things to watch in late summer. They are. And so if you want to uh, bring all that life into the garden, what, what should the pond be like? Yes. Um, ponds come in all shapes and sizes. In fact, a pond is a pond up until it's one hectare in area, at which point it's officially a lake. Not many of us would have space for a one hectare pond, but a lot of us have got space for a one square metre pond, or in case of many of us, I mean, mine is about five metres by three or four across. So it's quite a decent sized pond. But size actually doesn't matter all that much with ponds. What does matter is the way in which they're built. And it goes slightly against the grain, but you don't need deep water in a pond. If you read a lot of the books about ponds, well, particularly the books written by people about wildlife gardening or in general in ponds, they'll suggest that you need at least a metre depth of water in a pond. And that's really, frankly, unnecessary. I think that's come about because people thought of ponds as somewhere to keep fish in, and in many parts of Britain, fish will be living in the bottom of a deep pond when the top of the pond freezes over. And so arguably, deeper water is important for fish. But then actually, if you have fish in your pond, you're not going to get much else because fish eat the invertebrates, would be eating the things like the dragonfly larvae that will produce the things that we want to see. And certainly they'll be eating the frogs, toads and newts. So there's no need for it. If you actually look at where the biodiversity is in a pond, it's all in the top 10 centimetres. In fact, it's highest probably in the top two centimetres, and particularly around the edge of the pond rather than just in the middle. If you think about it, if you're a small creature living in the middle 
of the water in the middle of a pond, you can be seen from all around. And you're actually very vulnerable to many predators that may be swimming in the water. And so most pond life will spend nearly all of its time hidden away in the roots and stems of the plants within the pond. And that's where you should look to find the greatest biodiversity. So do you think that the whole pond should just be 10 centimetres deep all the way across? I think that would be extremely boring. And there's various reasons why you wouldn't want to do that. One is of which is that some of the plants that you might want to grow there actually need rather deeper water. About 30 centimetres is good enough. If you want to grow bits of it to be 50 centimetres, there's absolutely no problem. The crucial thing is that you don't need it to be very deep. Mm. And most people would have a pond which has got a deep bit in the middle or maybe a couple of patches with deep water in, and then get increasingly shallow at the edges, particularly with things like planting ledges, where you can get lots of plants going. And it's really nice to have a beach at one end of a pond where you've got the surface sloping gently, and you can cover that with with small stones, pebbles, and so forth. And of course, that's wonderful then for birds, because they can just walk in there and have a bath and flap about a bit and generally enjoy themselves. So the edges of a pond are more important than the middle. What about a kind of actual muddy edge, a bare earth edge? Are there not things that love the idea of, of, of bare earth? There certainly are. And in fact, whether or not you want it, typically people would bury a liner and then maybe cover the edge of the liner over with a bit of turf so that it blends naturally into the pond. You'll find that soil starts to accumulate there at the edges. And if you have a microscope or even a good hand lens and you scoop some of this stuff up and look at it in a dish, it's gobsmacking how much is living in there. So you're absolutely right. We tend to think of ponds in terms of ducks and fish and you know big insects and so on. But there's so much tiny stuff living in the soil and in the gravel and so on around the edge of the pond. I even, to my surprise, when I looked at mine, found there were tiny bivalves, like little tiny cockles living in my pond. And uh, that was a complete surprise and a joy, actually, to find them. How had they got there? I think classically we say they get there on the feet of birds. And yes, I always, I always read that. Is that really possible? Oh, it's certainly possible for some things. Definitely anything in the form of eggs and things can get tangled up on birds' feet. But of course, there's also, you know, people will move plants from one pond to another. Oh, I've got lots of yellow flag iris. Would you like them? Oh, yes, please. So things can get moved around like that as well. And if you buy stuff from a garden centre, as many people do, the chances are there'll be some things coming with that. But no matter how they get there, they get there, they seem to. Brilliant. Well, that's so good. And what about the like, the question of the liner? Because I naturally feel, oh my God, am I really going to put a giant petrochemical-derived plastic sheet to, to line my pond? Can't I line it with something like clay to make an entirely natural pond? Well, it won't be a natural pond because you've already lined it with clay. Right. Uh, natural ponds tend to form when bits of river get cut off. A very common form of natural pond is when a big tree falls over and pulls up a root plate and exposes a hole, which then will fill up with water from time to time. Natural ponds are really quite different in many ways from things like the agricultural ponds that we're familiar with. And if you're in an area with a high water table, which is often going to be a pretty clay area, then just digging down into that 
and you'll get a patch which will keep full of water for much of the much of the the year may well dry out in the summer but that actually isn't particularly important but what i think is an absolute waste of time is if you live in a gravelly area or something like that and you then import clay uh, from often a long way away and you will need literally huge lorry loads of clay to line a pond the clay also is not a very good sort of liner it's the only one available to people back in the medieval and victorian period but it cracks if it if it dries out in the summer it cracks and then it ceases to be a good uh, source of uh, it ceases to be waterproof and furthermore if you've got things like ducks and larger animals using it then they're continually disturbing the bottom of the pond and you get a thick soup rather than a nice clear pond there are interesting equivalents there's a stuff called bentonite I don't know if you've come across this, no. but bentonite is a natural mineral, which when you wet it, it swells tremendously. And you can produce a form of pond liner called bentomat, which is two layers of agricultural fleece with this bentonite paste effectively inside it. And you lay it, and when, it, when you then wet it, it swells up and makes an extremely effective liner. It's a very good way of lining a big pond, but it's extremely heavy and it is quite expensive. But that's a way of using, let's say, mud, if you like, in a very modern and effective way. That sounds a very good idea. There's nothing much wrong with using a butyl rubber liner. People are a bit strange about plastics in the garden. There's a lot of plastic which is absolutely horrible. And the worst sort is that which we make our clothes out of because that then forms little tiny particles, which is the stuff that gets into rivers and gets into the sea. But something like a bent, uh, something like a, a big butyl rubber mat really doesn't rot, and it will last for 30-odd years. It's not something which is going to be causing problems to the environment in your garden at all. On the contrary, it's something which is enabling you to have a really fine new ecosystem. So I would have little little problem with that. But again, it depends on the size. All these things get expensive as the pond gets bigger. Double the size of the pond and you get four times as much butyl liner needed, but also double the size of the pond and you get eight times more soil that you have to dispose of afterwards. And if you are thinking of digging a pond, you do need to think in advance about what you're going to do with what comes out of the hole in the ground. But if, if, as you say, it's the edges that are the really valuable place, actually lots of little ponds are more valuable than one big one. That's a very good point, Adam. I think you're quite right there. Again, it's a little bit like what I was saying earlier about gardens. No two ponds are going to be exactly the same because depending what finds its way in there and little bits about its depth or how much it dries out, these ponds are going to be different one from another. And in terms of getting a good variety within a large area, a lot of little ponds is probably a lot better than one big one. Does it matter if a pond dries out in, in the summer? Not really. In fact, in some respects, it's a good thing. Remember what I was saying about fish being anathema to uh, garden invertebrates. If a pond dries out, then you lose the fish. Plonk, that's it. And then when it refills, there's no competitive fish there which are going to eat things up. And you get the situation of a whole class of ponds called temporary ponds, which are usually quite small. And these have very specific uh, fauna within them and even rather specific flora too. 
And that's mediated by the fact that they do dry out. You'd think that everything would die, but actually the invertebrates are still there in the margins of the pond, in the roots of the plants and in the soil and in any mud on the bottom. And so it isn't crucial that ponds mustn't dry out. I think the thing to remember, though, is that you don't just have ponds in a garden because you want the invertebrates. You also have them because they look lovely and they're very restful things to have in the garden. So there's an aesthetic element to having a pond and having a large patch of mud is, is perhaps less aesthetic. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe, you know, we could do that on the farm, you know, where we're not staring at it every day, but it, it would become uh, an environment that did kind of you know, breathe with the conditions and 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 change with the world it was in, you know, rather than a kind of a fixed aesthetic object. It actually yeah. becomes a dynamic environment. Yes. And I think here it's a contrast between digging ponds for the sake of having ponds and wildlife as opposed to having a pond in a small garden where it has to, as um, – has been suggested for for the plants. They have to pay their rent in the garden right. um, to be justified. And a pond in a garden could be something which has a lot of different features associated with it. Whereas, just as you say, what you're doing in the rest of the farm would be creating water habitat for its own point. And that's mm -hmm. a great thing to do. You may have come across the term scrapes. Um, this is a popular thing to put in. A scrape would be just where you dig a, a small area out so that it does get wet and fills up during the winter and then probably dries out again in the summer. And these are really good habitat, particularly for things like wading birds. Would you um, introduce plants to a new pond or would you say let the pond develop as it wants to develop? That's another very good question and opinions could be different on this. If you're making your ponds in the farm in the way we've been describing, I would say just leave them. And they will colonise, and it'll take a while to get a large number of different plant species in there. But the fact is, they will probably come in, blown by the wind, brought in in uh, faeces, even for that matter, with uh, with birds. I don't think many of us have the patience with a small garden pond just to sit back and stare at a at a black butar liner. Mostly, in fact, universally, I think we want to put plants in there, and so then it's a question of deciding what sort of plants you like, and any particular prejudices you have about colour and so on can start to come in. But what I will say is from the invertebrates' point of view, it doesn't actually matter too much what species of plants you put in there. What you really should be aiming at is as much physical structure above and below the water as you can get. Say a bit more about that. What do you mean by that? Well, as I said, I think earlier, uh, from the invertebrate point of view, what they want is to be able to hide themselves away and get cover. Most of the things that live in ponds don't actually necessarily feed on the plants there. We think of uh, plants on land as something which supplies a load of herbivores. Most of the, of the creatures in ponds feed on algae within the pond, on plankton within the pond, and on the other little animals. So it's not as if you must put in, for example, nettles in uh, the garden if you want to bring in uh, certain sorts of butterfly. Even that's a myth. But it doesn't matter too much what species. The more diversity, the more tangled the root mass and so on, the more clustered stems there are, the better. And another thing that's very good, there's 
type of grass called glyceria or float grass. That's spelled F-L-O-T-E. And if you grow that around the edge of the pond, it's a very good way to bring a link between the terrestrial environment and, and the freshwater one. And a lot of, of invertebrates love the cover that's provided by float grass. And what if you find that your pond is filling in for whatever reason, silting up or, or filling with leaves? Should one just let that roll uh, in a natural way or or should you try and sort it out? And if, like we have here, uh, a totally silted up pond on the edge of the wood and it's really a kind of alder wet woodland alder car now is it the best thing to leave that be to keep kind of rolling through its processes and dig another pond elsewhere or or should i try and dig that one out again it comes to what you want to do with it i have to say that alder car is a really good habitat in its own right and particularly if it's still a fairly soggy thing if you walk on it adam do do you squelch you squelch you go in yeah. yeah yeah that's a great habitat and whereas if it's a large area of it you might want to dig a small part of it uh, just to get some sanding water just from sort of aesthetic point of view i think leave it if you've got the space then make other ponds and let them go through what is actually a successional process again it comes to the difference between having a single garden pond which is very precious to you or actually being able to do as you're suggesting, which would be fantastic, to create a number of ponds and then essentially let them get on with it themselves. That's undoubtedly the best thing you could possibly do from the point of view of the wildlife. That's fantastic. I'm going to butt in here, though. Because uh, what happens if you don't have a farm and you just, you know, you've just got to have a micro pond? Well, that's, he's he said, Steve's been really clear about that. You look after it in a very careful way. And yeah. if you have a bit more ground, you let them roll. Yes, it's it's just like as a gardener, you actually increase biodiversity because you're fiddling with the garden all the time. If you were to create a garden pond and just leave it, and I know this very much to my own cost, then the thing will fill up incredibly quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certainly some things to avoid planting in a, a small garden pond. And Norfolk reed or reed mace, which a lot of people call bulrush, is absolutely mm. lethal because it grows so fast that that it will literally cover the thing. Typical water lilies, they're beautiful creatures, beautiful things, but unless your pond is a couple of at least two or three square metres in size, I think you should be a bit cautious about putting water lilies in. There's a whole series of plants which go very nicely in small ponds, and there's lots of information available, including on our website, for what sort of things you might want to put in. Do you know what? We're going to come back to you, Steve, and in maybe March and April, we're going to do the best plants for biodiversity in gardens, which we've done a bit in the past, but you're the expert, and the best plants for a small pond in a small garden. Okay. So thank you, Steve. Really unbelievable amount of invaluable information. Absolutely. Changed changed our life. Thank you, Adam, (laughs) as well. (laughs) That I can rarely claim. (laughs) We will. We'll do it. We'll do what you say. Yeah, good for you. I'm sure you will, actually, (laughs) having seen what you've done already at Perchill. I I think it could be a fantastic place. Oh, still the could rather than the is. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. No, never rest on your laurels, Sarah, (laughs) or even your dahlias. 
Thanks so much for listening to Grow Cookie to Range with Steve Head and Adam Nicholson, my husband. Hope you enjoyed that. I found it really interesting and we are certainly planning more ponds at Perch Hill, both in the garden and around the farm. Next week, Josie Lewis, our head gardener here at Perch Hill, joins me. We're going to chat about a subject that came out of a question from a customer who listens to the podcast as well. And they wanted to know our absolute top, top creme de la creme plants that if we were sent to a desert island, we would want to take with us. We actually thought perhaps if we were sent to prison, we would take with us and what we would take to decorate the prison yard. But anyway, our favourite six each of anything from a shrub to a bulb and what will really enhance everybody's garden. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes we talk about on this podcast by heading to the show notes or at sarahraven.com forward slash podcast.